That's a good one, too. Fresh. All right. Here we go. Welcome back, everybody. Thirsty Thursday, number 10. Uh, and in honor of the summer, uh, we're doing uh, a little bit more in-depth on – there we go. Thanks, boys. Uh, a little bit more in-depth on our technical rescue that we started with. Uh, so this week, we're talking all about water rescue. Uh, and we're very fortunate that we have um, retired lieutenant from Ocean City Fire Department and current uh, captain with Tow US. Uh, and he's going to tell us a little bit about himself and what he's doing now. But Del Baker, uh, the one and only man that walks on water. Uh, so as as we've done in, in our previous shows, my name is Ben Waples, uh, kind of getting things started off, kicking us off here tonight. Um, volunteer captain, Salisbury, Maryland, uh, former part-time firefighter, paramedic, rescue swimmer um, in the town of Ocean City, where I got the opportunity to work with these three wonderful gentlemen, uh, including Bobby. Um, so, <laughs> A.K.A. quitter. Uh, yep, that's right. Not afraid to say it. Um, Come on, Dell. Um, so we'll kick it around. We'll kick it over to Trevor next, uh, so we can do his introduction, and hopefully we get Dell back on when when he gets his stuff figured out. So go ahead, Trevor. All right. Looks like uh, Cap Dell's going into black ops mode. You know, he's always been a special ops guy, so he's kind of going all stealth on us right now. But anyway, welcome everybody. Glad to have you here, uh, Ben. Thanks for setting this up. And yeah, we're. Really excited to be talking about some uh, water rescue stuff tonight. And uh, again, my name is Trevor Steedman. I work with these uh, other three individuals on the screen and for quite a while, actually. And um, I've got to say, I'm really excited uh, and really passionate about tonight's topic, especially. And for having Dell on tonight, um, him and I have spent a lot of time in the water, on the water, and under the surface of the water, both personally and professionally. And, um, you know, I, I can't say enough about him. So, uh, we're going to talk about a lot of different topics tonight, and especially not just about doing water rescue, but also about when we respond to those water rescue calls. If you're a non-entry person, what are some things that we can do as a fire department that uh, can set the stage for when the water uh, water folks get there? And um, yeah, with that, I'm just going to I'll pitch it over to Bobby real quick. But again, real excited, Dell, to have you on tonight. Uh, for those of you, to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, and. Uh, Dell has been around the industry for a long time and uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to steal a thunder, but he's kind of one of those web footed Eastern shore, Maryland or uh, Del Marva guys. And was, uh, he's definitely a water dog. So he's got to have a lot of great stuff for us tonight. So with that, Bobby, I'll kick it over to you. Hey, Bobby, you're on mute, man. That was, a good, one, that was a good test. Like right watching a Godzilla movie, Bobby, go ahead. Thanks for coming. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, um, I think everybody kind of knows uh, where I'm from and what I'm doing, so I'm going to go through the whole introduction thing again, um, except for I'm 32 years in the fire service. Got something exciting to tell everybody while Dell gets his stuff back together again. Um, so today I, I've been doing some hot weather runs. Uh, Trevor, you've probably seen some of that from Liz, I guess. But um, today I made my goal of making a uh, four miles in 40 minutes in 110 um, heat stress, I guess they call it, is the numbers. Is that what they call it, though? You're a weather yes. guy. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyways, the purpose of that was people said you're crazy. My neighbors say I'm crazy. My wife says I'm crazy. I, I probably am, actually. But um, the purpose is that in your fire gear, you're 110 to 120 degrees, whatever. And with a 45-minute bottle, um, if you're doing moderate to heavy work, you're probably doing 20 minutes on a 45-minute bottle. It's not really 45 minutes. And um, my whole goal was to kind of get ready for this fall to 
do an air consumption drill that Trevor and I've been doing for years, and Dell's done it with us too, and actually all these guys have done it with us. Um, and my goal was to get my body in shape to be ready for doing that and training in the heat. And luckily today, everything was good. Uh, temperature was only 99 degrees, like two minutes after the run. It was 98 degrees, 10 minutes after the run. I mean, vital signs are great. Um, so I'm really excited about that. That's a, that's my big big news for the day. Um, but the other thing is I'm really glad to have Dell on here. Um, you know, when we talk about water rescue, I'm not the guy. Uh, I'm not even close. Um, the guys at work pick on me all the time. He says, the only, you're, I'm the only guy that was in a Navy that ever knew that could hardly swim a lick. So uh, luckily I always worked with Dell, so I knew if I got in trouble, I had someone coming to me. So <laughs> Dell had that, that natural technique to come get people, and I'm really, really excited to have Dell on here. Um, you know, and, and I'm actually interested to hear about, you know, um, we probably need to talk about guys that want to really go deep into this thing uh, when they show up on a call where they want to do something, and there's sometimes probably where they shouldn't. Uh, I know in Ocean City, where we're from, um, I have a great appreciation for our lifeguards and our rescue swimmers in the fire department, and Dell helped to lead that whole thing up in the beginning. Um, those guys are going out in some tremendously horrible conditions, night, um, you know, 12-foot seas, things that are not normal things. And I'm sure people all across the country are doing uh, swift water stuff and everything else, too. And there's just there's probably some times where guys like me need to learn when we're not going to be that hero that we need to kind of step back a little bit. So hopefully tonight I'll catch a little bit of that. But um, from a swimmer novice that uh, I actually even forgot my swimming for tonight. So we'll have to <laughs> wing it a little bit. Um, I, I'm going to turn over to Dell. If you just want to introduce yourself, my brother, and uh, tell us about yourself a little bit and we'll get started. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, thanks for having me guys. First of all, it's a pleasure being with you guys. And uh, uh I retired from Ocean City five years ago. I had the opportunity to command the Rescue Swimmer program, and I was commander of the Ocean City Dive Team. Um, I've been around the water most of my life. Um, when I started in Ocean City, I worked for the Ocean City Beach Patrol for a few years, and at night I would go ride at the firehouse. And I couldn't believe those guys actually got paid to do what they did. And I soon realized that um, I wanted to be at the fire station instead of being on the beach all the time. So uh, I... I was fortunate to learn a lot in the very early years. And I think Trevor remembers the days that when we would come to work in the off season, that we would wear our actual trunks, you know, our, our swim trunks, you know, we'd surf in the morning, go to work at the firehouse, leave our trunks, you know, out to dry, put them back on late in the evening when the beach patrol went off duty, because we knew we were the guys that were probably going to be going out there to rescue somebody after hours when beach patrol went off service. So, um, Currently, I work for uh, Towboat US. I'm a captain with them. Uh, we run up to 75 miles offshore. So we do get involved with some water-related emergencies. We do a lot of salvage uh, operations, you know, lifting boat, boats that have sunk, uh, recovery, recovery of vehicles that go overboard. So I still stay in network with the guys from the state police, the Department of Natural Resources guys up here. We all work collectively together. Um, and I'm constantly learning something all the time from those folks, which is really nice also. Um, I think tonight, uh, I think it's important to talk about some of the things when we talk about conditions and going to work and your readiness and your, your preparedness. Um, I know I made it a point for myself when I would drive into work in the mornings, you know, I kind of made it a point to take one good look at the beach, whichever station I was working out of. I would ride up to the beach and take a glance at the ocean and look at the conditions and see what they were like. And then, uh, 
we had the opportunity uh, when Beef Patrol came online with us that we could flip over to their channel and they would give their morning briefing and they would tell you the morning surf conditions. And uh, most agencies still do that, I think. And uh, they reported conditions, conditions throughout the day, um, any hazards, you know, that may be within your area. Um, and I just always took that information in. And as the day went on, if you were running multiple, multiple neck and backs on the beach, you know, what we call TCs, as much as I hate to say it, tourist crushers, um, they, uh, <laughs> we knew that towards the end of the day that when Beach Patrol went off duty, we were probably going to be out there, whether it was a neck and back related emergency or high surf conditions and somebody got swept out in a, in a rip current. So as those conditions change and you're at the station and you're out there and you're monitoring all these calls for these neck and backs, you can almost prepare yourself that you may be going in the water sometime that afternoon, that night. And there was also days where they had multiple, you know, high surf conditions with multiple victim rescue and they would contact the fire department, you know, because we had an established program and we worked collectively with them and they would put us on watch. They would say, Hey, we need you at 76th street. We've got multiple victims in the water and we would deploy our people. So it was always nice to work with those guys. And, you know, it was mutual respect always, which was most important. Um, so I've probably talked long enough and uh, Ben, you jump in here and, and then we'll talk about some other things, maybe towards the end of the evening when we have multiple victim rescue and when you make the, have to make that decision, do I go back into the beach or do I wait for Coast Guard or DENRAC or aviation to lift me out of the conditions in which we're in? Uh, that may be a topic we should probably cover because we don't know what that doesn't always happen. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks though. Um, and I, I think one thing that we need to hit on real, real quick before we get too in depth with all of this is, um, the and, and Trevor and, and Bobby and Dell have all mentioned it is the the wonderful circumstance that we have in Ocean City specifically uh, to work with Beast Patrol. Um, I, I can remember when I started the working in Ocean City. Um, you know, Beast Patrol was was it. I mean, you want to talk about a bunch of legit uh, folks out there doing it every day, ten to five thirty. You knew that if you're going to the beach. Um, you know, if they called you out there that it was a legitimate injury or there was something going on that, um, you know, you needed to be there for. It wasn't just some, you know, some ding dong calling you out on the beach um, and that they were out there. You know, they were doing their job from the time they started to the time they got off. Uh, and even even afterwards, um, you know, they, they started staffing those the quads and running up and down the beach even after they got off, especially on days mm -hmm. when the surf was worse. Um, so first. You know, cheers to you guys. Thanks for joining us. Great to great to be here again. So, and then one more for Ocean City Beach Patrol for the fine job that they do. Those men and women out there doing it. They We're do. gonna get hammered here in the first twenty minutes. So, we'll, who knows what'll happen after that? <laughs> and um, you can't get you can't get hammered off chocolate milk, brother. Trust me. How did you know it was in there? I know you, bro. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's. That I think is the big thing is is the you know when when we get called to the beach, especially in Ocean City, um, after five thirty uh, and before ten a.m., uh, the the chances of the rescue swimmers having to make entry and affect some sort of rescue on um, a, a struggling swimmer, or a drown, an active drowning victim, is much higher than from the time of ten a.m. to five thirty when the when beach patrol is out there. Um, a lot of what Beach Patrol does is is prevention. 
Um, so they're sitting in stands, they're monitoring the ocean, they're seeing what's going on. Um, they're seeing things evolve, um, you know, kind of like an incident commander watching a fire and directing his troops uh, or her troops as they go through the incident. Um, you know, the beach patrol is doing the same thing. They're getting people out of danger before they are even in it or before they even know about it. Um, so when, when after those time or outside of that time frame, when the fire department has to make a response for those, for those incidents, it's a legit rescue and, and you need to be on your A game. So, um, you know, like, like Dell said, as he was coming in and even when we would get our equipment checks done, um, I know that we would um, go out and ride around and take a look up on the beach, see what we're working with for the day. Um, and even the ship supervisor would send out a message to the rescue swimmers working, Hey, this is what, this is what we're dealing with in the ocean. Uh, just be prepared. And especially as we got into the off season, as the, Ocean gets a little bit bigger, a little bit more aggressive. Um, so, with that being said, what are um, and we'll we'll start kicking some stuff around here. You know, we have people that are you know we have we we recognize that we have this this body of water in our first due. What are some um, some training goals? What are some things that we can do to help prepare ourselves and prepare our department uh, for responding to those incidents, both for uh, folks that we're gonna that are interested in being and in going into the water and being the rescue swimmer, and for the people that are like, you know what, swimming's not really my thing, um, but I'm I know I'm gonna be on the call. What what are some things that we can have both of those folks or both of those groups do uh, to better prepare themselves? So, and you you really got to go back to the basics and just to dovetail in with what you were talking about. Our ocean rescue folks, our surf rescue technicians, lifeguards. They do a phenomenal job. The majority of what they do each and every day is education and prevention. They do a lot of rescues, especially up in the mid-Atlantic where we're from. They certainly do some uh, plenty down here in South Florida as well. But they have an elevated vantage point, and all day long they're looking, they're scanning, they're, and they're keeping people out of trouble. So when they're blowing their whistle and waving with their flags and people are starting to get irritated with them, they don't realize that they see that rip current that's right next to them or they see that dangerous marine life that's swimming uh, in proximity to them. So when those people go off duty in Ocean City is a classic example, at 25 minutes after five in the evening, you know, the crew chief gets up on the stand and they're telling, they're telling everybody to get up and they do a final scan. They pull everyone out of the water and say, from this point forward, this is not a guarded beach. We do not recommend you go back in the water and the pool is not open. You swim at your own risk. And that's at the point that we get called. So we don't have the advantage typically of that prevention activity. And I know you'll find this hard to believe in many seaside communities. Sometimes alcohol is involved in people's decision making process when they go choose to go out into the water. So when the fire department gets called, we show up and we're there not during good weather hours, usually. I mean, because typically during, if the weather's bad, people pull back off the beach, except except for the surfers. You know, they'll go out in anything. But uh, you know, we'll go out when it's diminishing light, changing weather conditions, it's getting dark, a fog bank's rolling in. So we have a lot of challenges in addition to what the lifeguards deal with. And we don't do it every single day. Those lifeguards are professional rescuers. They go out there and they get the job done and they do it exceptionally well. It's such a small part of what we do, but we have to be just as proficient. So to answer your question, Ben, we have we divided it in. Uh, I want Dell to talk about this as well. When we started this out, it was pretty much the guys who were surfers and water dogs on the shifts that would say, oh, oh gosh, if we have a water rescue call today. Who's going in the water? And it was very informal and very unstructured. 
So then it got to the point where we looked at entry versus non-entry personnel, because unlike in a building fire, and you know the risk there, we have a RIT team. We have a contingency plan to get people out of a building. In a, in a water rescue, you're four times as likely to be killed as a rescuer than you are in a house fire. And so let that sink in just for a minute. Who's our RIT team? If we have very few swimmers or very few entry people, uh, we, what are we going to do as a backup? And then the other pressure is there that when we roll up in a big red truck with uh, the word rescue plastered down the side, an eight inch scotch light, there's a general expectation of the public that we're there to do something and not sit there and be just a spectator. So we don't want to put our people in a position where we're endangering them. And at the same time, we have to be able to say at, at least where do we start? And Dell was very instrumental in this, not only from a departmental side, but also from uh, our, our training company side where we started to teach our folks what we call water awareness and survival. So even if you weren't going to be an entry guy, um, let's let's just pick somebody like, uh, I don't know, Bobby McGee. Let's just use that name for, for example. So if, if you knew you weren't a water guy, you, you still had a use and value on the scene. What could you do as far as establishing maybe something like a last scene point or getting information? Or um, we had the DD policy where we'd actually put people into a war with certain uh, elements and, and tools to be able to begin to affect the rescue. So, and Dell, I'll take you back a little bit in history. Um, when we first started trying to get this rescue swimmer program together, we didn't have a great relationship with our beach patrol. Um, but now we we kind of had that we had that professional rivalry where. You know, Beach Patrol had those stickers that say only God saves more lives than the Ocean City Beach Patrol. And you know, we would have our little thing that said, you know, Beach Patrol swims in an Ocean City Fire Department walks on it. So we, we didn't chat. But then we, we started talking to each other and people like who had who were former Beach Patrol like Dell. We started to have that conversation. And Dell, you probably still remember this. You and I were doing some training with uh, Lieutenant Wes Smith going, yes. and, and way, 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 way back. And we Dell and I were on duty. Um, same thing. You know, a lot of times, because we knew we were probably going to be the guys going in the water, we were wearing our board shorts underneath our uniform. Because if you swam, done rescue swimming enough in a uniform, you know how bad it sucks. And we were soaking wet and had a call. I think it was a cardiac arrest or a stroke or something, Dell. And we roll up on the scene, look like two drowned rats in a, in our fire department t-shirts and board shorts. And on, here the, comes on the board on the boardwalk, and here comes the supervisor. Yeah, and then then the. Uh, the shift, yes, sir. The shift supervisor came up and um, he did not have his happy face on. So, but again, we would rather explain why we were, you know, out of uniform and training. But yeah, we we kind of got the you know the PP smacked on that one. But we we did the we did the right thing, probably the wrong way. But either way, going for it. Um, but the point being is that evolved into you know, having such a great program, and we had the backing of a lot of the people who saw that uh, who saw that need. To say, hey, look, you know, the, the ocean is open a lot. We have also, we're a barrier island community, so we had the bay. Um, yeah, I don't have to deal this down in South Florida unless I'm pulling a beer out of a cooler, but ice rescue was something that, um, you know, became a, an issue with us, you know, up there. So um, with that, you know, I kind of want to kick it over to Dell, and, and if you could talk for a minute about the genesis of it and some of the things that we, we learned, because obviously overnight we weren't able to, uh, like, reconstruct the dive team and uh, do the water rescue team without actually having the backing of the people who believed in us and took that to the people above. And um, actually, I'm, I just, that's, wow, that's, uh, that's karma right there. I just saw somebody pop up on the screen who uh, was instrumental in supporting us getting the, uh, the dive team and uh, eventually the water rescue team of uh, Mr. Clay stamp. He just popped up on the screen. So, oh. yep. So Dale, if you don't mind talking about the genesis of that a little bit and uh, 
you know, and how we went from basically an isolated program with so a few rescue swimmers to talking about water awareness and survival for non-entry personnel as well, like in case they fell in a canal out back of a structure fire. Right. Well, um, yes. And th th we learned a lot of things along the way, uh, things that uh, we weren't aware of, like night rescues. Um, the incident commander, you know, wanting to know where we were. Um, so we added and implemented some things like lighted um, buoys on our rescue buoys. Uh, but more importantly, the, the people from entry people to non-entry people and what their responsibilities were, we realized very on early on, like Trevor mentioned, there was some people that had no intentions of going into water and didn't care to go into water. However, doing a rescue like that, we definitely had we definitely needed people that could could do all those jobs. And really important when you arrive on the beach and getting a good last scene point, it's really important to separate your witnesses because, you know, everyone is always drawn to the person who is yelling the loudest and they may not be the person who is best to talk to in that situation, you know, but you really need to grab the individuals and separate them and then collectively to get two stories from a last scene point and then go from there and then establish the last scene point. When you're looking at your personnel that are arriving on the scene as they're getting there, if they're not an entry person, and they don't want to be involved with search and rescue, they can also get to an elevated position. I mean, balconies, buildings, anything that's there. Most of the units that we had, we all had binoculars on them. Get to an elevated position with a radio and begin to do visuals because if you have high surf conditions and on a big surf day, you're, you're going to see just a little blip every now and then up and over a wave. That's about what you're going to see. So we did realize early on that there was a job for everybody, and it takes a lot to run an ocean rescue. Like Trev said, it's not something that we do every day. And, Bobby, I know you mentioned it's not your thing. Ben, you've had a lot of you know experience around the water. But when you do get involved in it, in it, it's like the ocean rescue guys that are out there, they're doing prevention all day. When we arrive, prevention is over. It's rescue. You are absolutely in rescue mode. And normally by the time that we would receive that call, you're already behind the curve on the exhausted swimmer, you know, and we'll talk about those things that you see with an exhausted swimmer, you know, what signs that they're exhibiting, you know, that they're getting ready to go under and, uh, and things like that. Um, but there's another point that you were making, Trevor, that you wanted me to talk about. What, what else was that? Um, well, they'll basically, um, you had kind of started out where we, we had a very narrow view of water rescue because yes. most of what we did was ocean rescue and also bayside rescue. We but, did. You're right. but basically looking at saying, all right, how do, how do we take the things that instead of just focusing strictly on the people who are going to make entry into the water, what were some things we did? And I, I'll kind of plant the seed in your mind, like with the, um, when we did the class for um, Winterfest in Tillman Island about doing water awareness and survival for the firefighter, right. even if they're not an entry person, that if they found themselves in the aquatic environment, like like Bobby, but if they found themselves in the aquatic environment, not only could they survive, but they could also take some initial steps to help uh, start to mitigate that incident until we got our water rescue people in place. So if you can kind of start yeah. at that point. Right, yeah, okay. So for instance, when you have calls that, 
kind of like make you think, um, what could we have done different, you know, if, if we had to do that over again? Uh, and it, for instance, we developed a program and we actually trained with it uh, for injuries related to sandbars and, you know, watercraft vehicles, you know, high impact injuries with jet skis, jet skis hitting sandbars with an ejection, an ejected swimmer. And uh, we actually trained to do that because we had an incident where we had a jet ski uh, hit a sandbar and he was ejected and was face down and unconscious. And we actually developed a program to get personnel out to the individual, begin stabilization. And, um, and then whether, whether we were airlifting or whether we were using a boat at that time, we didn't have a fire boat, you know, so we were using, you know, department of natural resources and coast guard and all the additional resources that we had. And, and I mean, it, it worked very well, but we learned a lot from things that we were doing when we would have a night rescue, it would drive the incident commander crazy that other than the whistles that we had, he really didn't know where we were. And so that's when we began with the strobes on our buoys and we, we implemented change, you know, as, as, as things were developing, you know, because it was, it was constantly an evolution all the time. And we have a lot of smart people that were figuring this out on their own. Hey, maybe we should do this, or maybe we should add this, you know, to the program. And it was very easy to do. Uh, and it, it made things a lot safer for us. That that's what was most important to me made, made for the rescuer and, and for the incident commander, you know, knowing what his resources were going to be, because, you know, when you got a rescue swimmer out there, um, normally, DENRAC and Coast Guard is also deployed, especially if it's a nighttime operation. So basically, you know, for them to be able to get a good visual on you, you can see them. You can certainly see their flashing lights, but, but for them to get a good visual on you, you know, that's when we realized that we needed lighted strobes on our buoys, et cetera. Right. And something else I, I think they'll really important with what you're saying is this didn't this didn't occur overnight, and we had to do that that visceral gut check of our operations each and every time. Not only we had an incident, but at any time we had something larger scale, even something like a hurricane or a northeast storm, where we would put people out on the street during flood rescue. And you know, a lot of people get fixated on swift water or ocean rescue or dive rescue, and those are very specific. However, we put your tailboard up. Well, what? What's the term for it now, Ben? We don't call them tailboard firefighters anymore. What do you guys call them? Yeah, I don't know. I still go okay. with tailboard. But. All right, you guys, you guys who ride backwards. But anyway, so, so we'll, we'll put the jump seat firefighters out on the street in a pair of chest waders. And, you know, manhole covers have popped off. And, you know, if we don't teach them how to probe or if they were to slip and fall in those waders, now they're in the aquatic environment. And we, we also made the mistake thinking that, oh, this is – we were trying for interoperability. We did it well. But we would integrate our lifeguards, our beach patrol, in riding on our fire engines during hurricanes and northeast storms for essentially rescues out of structures. With you, know, We say, hey, they're professional swimmers. Let's bring them along. The short-sightedness in that was that we didn't look at the big picture. We were putting our people in dry suits and chest waders, and we expect them to go out there in their red trunks and, and tank tops in flood water, which is hazmat soup, essentially. So as you know, as we evolved in the process, we got a little bit you know a little bit wiser each and every time. And uh, you know, like Della mentioned, it's looking at the different resources that we have and saying, all right, if I have to put a firefighter in in or around an aquatic environment, and, and Dell, this will uh, this will go back a little bit too. I remember at the uh, Beachcomber Apartments fire, we had you know the, 
couple explosions in the building. And we had firefighters who I can't remember. They either fell in the pool or fell in the um, fell in the bay. You know, do we still teach people how to float in turnout gear? If they fall down wearing those waders during a flood rescue, do we teach them how to kick out of them and survive? So uh, you know, from that point, Bobby, let me let me ask you, because I know you, know, you uh, participated. Uh, you're very well, I don't think you have much of a choice, but you you, you were you for, for someone who's who will categorize themselves as a non swimmer. Um, Bobby was one of those people who, when we had that training, said, man, I want to get everything I possibly can out of this. So from your perspective, Bobby, what were some of the things that were done well and that we could have done better to prepare non-entry folks for the aquatic environment? I think complacency. Um, I think I think the big thing is so because um, I'm not a strong swimmer, but um, I li I've lived around the water my whole life. And so I think a lot of times we take the water for granted. Um, we, we see it every day, we, we marvel at it, we see the sun rise over it, we see the sun set over it, and, and we think it's great, but, you know, the water can move quickly and kill us, and I think, you know, part of that training is, um, if you're in that water, stay afloat, and so, I mean, I, I really appreciate it. Dell, I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, I wish we had Doug Scott here, all, uh, we all are friends with him, um, you know, Doug Scott was um, the instant commander, and, and so, uh, while I'm not a, definitely not a swim rescue guy, um, you know, I've been an instant commander of multiple alarm fires and, and things like that and, and horrible accidents and, and all those types of things, normal things we all are instant commanders of. And, um, you know, he, he talked to me a lot about the, the nighttime call that, that you went on, Dell. Um, and, and when he discussed it, he talked about his, his he, he never realized. So um, I'll let Dell talk a little bit more about it, but I know it was very, very large, sir. And they had multiple people went in the water when they shouldn't have went in at nighttime. And the rescue swimmers went in. Um, and, you know, next thing you know, here's an instant commander that has no idea what's going on. Um, he can hear yelling, he can hear stuff, but he has no idea what's happening and things like that. So, you know, from, from an instant commander's perspective, perspective I guess you could say, um, that, that sounds scary to me because even when you're watching a building fire, you kind of can see things and you're used to doing it. You can see the smoke, it's getting worse, it's getting better. You know, where should people be? You know, that kind of thing. And I think that one really threw our, our good friend Doug Scott for a loop because it was something that was totally, as those guys swam out, his command was over. There were no radios. There were no par checks. There were no any of that kind of stuff. So, I mean, maybe Dell can talk a little bit about that, about you know, about that that night and, and kind of the conditions and things like that. But those are kind of the extreme conditions that this water can do. I I still in our area here in, in Delaware and Maryland, we had a, a big storm in northeastern 1962, and, and I just remember those stories of a state police officer getting killed driving down the highway because the water overtook him. And people getting killed in their cottages on the bayfront, which we, our bayfront is not a wave. It's not a, it's normally not a dangerous place, you know, and, and, and sometimes the water gets moving. So, Del, if you just want to talk a little about those, those unusual uh, nighttime, you know, hurricane stuff, and maybe even talk about that call a little bit. Yeah, Bobby, I will. Um, thank you for bringing that up. I, I guess what I would like to start with saying, you know, we, you know, when you start a unit like that, the water rescue team, you really think you got your stuff together until you have an incident that arrives at night. And then you realize, you know, that there were some things that weren't adequate, you know, 
and we needed to figure it out. And most importantly, we realized from from the experience of that night that we could make changes and we talked about it and we would make changes. But it was a multiple victim rescue in the ocean at midnight in September. And they decided they wanted to go for a swim. And uh, there was one close, the police were on the scene first and they were shining lights out there. But what I remember most were the people hollering. They were yelling for help, screaming for help. And I remember talking to Doug later on about it. Everything went silent because the people stopped hollering for help. And in Doug's mind, he had lost everyone. But in our mind, the people had stopped hollering for help because we had them on our buoys. But the problem was, is how do we get back in in those conditions? And that's when you talk about multiple victims, multiple rescues. And we basically had to make a decision. Uh, myself and another rescue swimmer, we were within the surf line and there was uh, a female that was probably another 30 to 40 yards out farther screaming for help. So you have to make that decision right then. Risk, reward. Do I risk going back through the impact zone You know, with this victim? Is he strong enough to hang on to the buoy? Is he too exhausted? So you have to evaluate that individual which we did, and we realized very quickly that we should come together. So myself and the other rescue swimmer came together, put both victims together, and then we as a group swam out to grab the other girl that was another 40 yards out. And then once we got to her, basically it was over. But you kind of have to make that decision. Do I return with the victim that I have on my buoy, and can I make it back out here safely? And will that victim still be there? It's a decision that you got to make. It's a tough call. In my mind, I knew what I would do based on the circumstances. You know, I, we made the decision to go get the other victim. And at that time, it was the right decision. The problem was going out another 50 yards in high surf conditions out of the northeast. It took us about another 100, 150 yards down the beach. So the poor guys that were the incident commanders and the people that were on the beach as spotters, they don't hear the yelling anymore. They don't hear anything from us, you know. So they're assuming that something has happened. So it was a, a cloudy night, I believe. And so I don't think any aviation was available. But we did have Coast Guard and we did have other agencies coming to us. Um, and that's the other option that it gives you. The bottom line was we all made it in safe. But we had a good heart-to-heart -heart with all of us. And I... I I admitted right away, you guys had no idea where we were because we probably should have had lighted buoys you know, on our rescue cans. We probably should have had whistles so that we could audibly, you know, sound off. That was something that we added and changed. Um, and and I guess more importantly, the, uh, the, the fact that the incident commander not knowing really what else to do. I mean, I get that from his perspective, you know. What else do I do? What other resources do I have available? You know, and uh, fortunately uh, that night, like I said, we, you know, we all, we all made it in and it, it was fine, but we rapidly made some changes and in a very short time. And uh, because we, you know, we, we came up short on that one and we fixed it and we fixed it. And uh, I think, uh, I think from Doug's perspective, Doug and I have had several conversations 
about that. That was pretty tough. You know, I agree. I wholeheartedly agree. You know, nighttime rescues, low visibility, you know, there's all those things, you know, that's tough. And, you know, and for the rescuer, you know, making the decision, you know, it's risk reward. You know, what's the risk to swim another 50 yards? Can I do it? You know, can, you know, my victim, are, are they able to hang on to the can, you know? And there's other times you may, you may elect not to come back to the impact zone, not to come back to the surf zone. If the surf zone is that big and you realize you got to go back through it and your victim's already having trouble hanging on to the surf rescue can, and even though you may have your hand on his, it may not be a good idea to come back to the end zone, uh, the impact zone. You don't have to be a hero just because you come back to the beach. You can wait to be picked up by the Coast Guard or DENREC, or if aviation's available, they will airlift you out of there. They will mitigate the emergency for you, you know. And uh, and it's 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 just something to think about, you know. You don't always have to return to the beach, you know. Um, and the, the times that we go on these calls, I mean. Uh, really, you know, it is big surf. It's big surf condition. That's what gets these people in trouble. You know, they're not going to call us when they're out there on a nice calm day out for a nice leisurely swim. It's going to be big. It's going to be nasty. And that's the kind of stuff you should train in. You know, if you have a big day and you're on the job and, you know, and your supervisor will allow you, that's when you want your personnel out there training together. Get in teams of two and get out there and train in those big surfs. Because for an instant commander, it's also important, you know, so he can realize the actual size that you really look in big surf. You're really not that big. You're not that big a target. And, you know, we have night vision. We have a lot of good things, you know, that's available to us, you know, in our toolbox. But still, you know, for physically being able to put your eyes on somebody, to me, is most important. And I think you guys can jump in any time. Yeah, and Dell, I, mean, I, long. I No, absolutely not, brother. I mean, we could listen to you all night. Um, you're absolutely, and just to kind of, segue into what you're talking about, Dell. There's so many resources out there. And um, I'll talk real quick about not only from the swimmer perspective, but the instant command perspective. And you know, Doug Scott, someone I have a world of respect for as well. Um, I went on a, a dive call with him and he goes, I'm not a diver, plant yourself right here. And I mean, just the way he managed resources was phenomenal. So you don't have to be Ricky Rescue in the water to run a good incident. I mean, you know, he ran a superb incident up there in the Fenwick ditch for missing people under the water. Um, and you know, just because he has that presence of mind to get the SMEs next to him. Uh, Dale, you mentioned things like night vision goggles. I know on our battalion rig in uh, Ocean City, we had night vision, but I'm rolling up on, I'm rolling up on the engine. And let's say I'm not an entry guy. You know, what about that thermal imaging camera? Can you do a quick scan with that? And Dale, you also mentioned, and I don't know if, how many people caught it, but this is really important to uh, maybe repeat. When you're looking with that thermal imager, just like we teach, you're not looking big, you're looking small. So your target might be this from here up, 100 yards offshore, it's going to be a speck. So, you know, you're not looking for, the, and also the, the temperature of water might also bring that, that variance on the thermal imager that uh, that contrast down a little bit. So you really have to start you know, training with that. Go out and do some nighttime operations. And that's what I encourage my folks to do. Um, you know, I've got entry people and I've got non-entry people. And they know when they go out on the beach at nighttime, they're taking the thermal imager. Um, you know, they're doing a scan. They're looking for the last seen point. But also talking about things about having interoperability. Um, you know, in Ocean City, we worked a lot with the U.S. Coast Guard and, and Natural Resources Police. Down here where I am, we work a lot with Coast Guard and the uh, Palm Beach Sheriff's Office and also some of the local Marine units, ultimate based. 
So don't wait until you have that incident to figure out how to work together because nothing's worse than being a rescue swimmer in the water. And, and Dell, I know you've you know, trained people to this end uh, over and over. You know, when we're working with uh, marine operations with a boat, does that boat is that boat handler used to working with lines in the water, with right. landlines, with buoys, with swimmers in the water? Because the last thing we want to do is become propeller bait. It's bad enough that in a saltwater environment, well, even freshwater environment in a lot of the southern United States, once you enter the water, you enter the food chain. So you know, you have aquatic life that you have to deal with. You have temperature variances. What are you using to protect yourself? Because um, you know as well as I do, it doesn't take long to start getting really cold. And then your, your muscles uh, don't work quite as, as well as they should. And if we have to go from a surface rescue and all of a sudden that person goes under and we go to a subsurface operation, how are we going to sustain that without pulling people out of the water? So, uh, you know, I think the takeaway home or take takeaway point that I want people to take home with them is look at all those resources ahead of time. Start to talk to these individuals, talk to your local Coast Guard station, your Marine unit, or if you don't have a Marine unit, figure out the how and the why. Uh, you know, if you have something out on a lake or a freshwater pond or a river, whatever the case is, what are the resources you have available and start to understand your capabilities and limitations. Um, and Dale, with that, uh, I, I wanna start talking a little bit too about uh, you know, some of the different variances we have. And I wrote a couple notes down here. When we first went out in any kind of aquatic environment, we always looked to send somebody, especially a non-entry person, to a point of elevation. Ocean City, for example, where I am, a lot of high rises, a lot of condos. So when we get the call from somebody on the 15th floor of a high rise, send somebody to that unit and have that person point you put their finger on the on the glass of the sliding window and say, this is exactly where I saw the person. Stick a little piece of tape up there. We've, we've had the same thing. And um, now I think you know, we, I don't know if we actually had to go out on the call. I know we, we received it, but even when we had aircraft go down in the water and people would be able to kind of at least triangulate or give a rough you know search area to start. And so Dale, if you could talk to say, all right, if, if I'm, if I'm a non-entry person and, what what information would you like to hear from me as that initial first arriving engine company, ambulance, paramedic unit, truck company, whatever it is, what information would be the most helpful for you as the incoming either dive unit commander, water rescue commander, or just the water guy coming in? What what would be the, the most beneficial things for you to be able for me to gather for you to be able to have a seamless operation for you to go forward? Uh, I think most importantly, if they're first arriving, then um, how many victims do we have? You know, what's the victim count? Where was the last scene point and where is your witnesses? And then basically separating the witnesses, getting the police involved, which are always good, you know, to assist you and help you. And then and gather information as quickly as you can and then come up with a plan. It could be a shallow water, you know drowning it could be you know right in the surf so you could end up having a, a walking search rescue or it could be one that's farther out so establishing a last scene point is really key you know to the first arriving units because as an ic when he gets there he needs to know where where to put his personnel and if you have one rescue swimmer and he's the only rescue swimmer you want to use your first resource you know as as best as you possibly can to put them on the target as soon as possible because there's a high probability 
they're still you're you're still in rescue mode. You're not in recovery mode. You're in rescue mode at that time. Even even if you have a floater, you're still in rescue mode. That's how we always treat this. And the victims come back to the beach. So I think I think that's the information that I would want as soon as possible. And then as an IC, that that's when you want to get someone in an elevated position, as you mentioned, you know, to start looking, observing, looking to see if they see anything, looking to see if they see anybody floating. And you can also, if you have the right people and you don't have enough personnel, but you have the right people on the beach, look, beach patrons want to help. They want to get involved. And if you have a trash can on the beach and you have a last seen point, if you can move that trash can to the last seen point, so that the rescuer, as he's looking back towards the beach, he has a point that he can line up with. Like he could line up with that, and that could become a search area, especially if you're saying 30 yards out, 50 yards out. And that is that would be his, his line towards the beach from last seen point. Because if you have somebody out there and you, you ask them to stand in one position, it's very <laughs> difficult. More than likely, that's not going to happen. They're going to wander. As soon as somebody says something to them, hey, come over here, come over here. But you really need to put a person in that last scene position also, and they need to stay there. And just grabbing something physical. And you know how this stuff you see that we see on the beach, you know, with, with sand buckets or standing up a boogie board onto the beach, you know, standing it up, you know, and you as a, you know, the IC, you know, you're standing in front of it. That's a great search area. That saves time, you know. And when we're in rescue mode, time is really important. So I hope that makes sense, you know, kind of what I said. And anybody else can jump in. Um, I, I, I kind of don't know what else to add to it right now. I, I think um, I'm on it. You guys want me to keep track of where they were to begin with? Yes. That's right. Yes. I, Trevor, you're muted. Yeah. And Bobby, to that to that end, um, and I'll, I'll throw this to Ben. Uh, you know, one of the things is Dell mentioned earlier on is having that information at the beginning of the shift. Some years ago, uh, the shift commanders used to get on the radio in the morning and give the complete rundown of conditions, high tide, low tide, what could be expected. You know, do you know the difference between a tide and a current? Do you know the rule of 12s when it comes if you're in a tidal community? Do you know the rule of 12s? When, when you should expect the most tidal flow? So, Ben, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, we have a, Ocean City, we have a report of a kid who falls off the bulkhead or the seawall at 3rd Street. Is it important to you to, to understand if it's incoming or outgoing tide? You know, where, where are you going to put your first unit? I'm, I got dispatched to 3rd Street and the Bay for a kid who fell overboard. Well, that's great, and I'm going to go where he was, but I'm, I might not be where he is. So, you know, we would dispatch a unit to the scene, but also we would you know, estimate you know, what, what the current of tide was going to be at that particular time of day. And you know, like at my fire station, for example, there's the, there's the, uh, the board in the back of the fire station that has you know, who was assigned to what crew, what apparatus, this, that, and the other. It has high tide, low tide, marine warnings, marine conditions, any warnings or watches, anything that's in, in there. And if we have a missing diver, it's really important to know, do I send somebody up to the bridge or do I send somebody down to the inlet or do I call the next due, uh, department to the south of me to let them know to start a search or do I contact the Bahamian government and say, hey, this guy doesn't have a passport, but he's going to beat you in about two hours because it's a good outgoing tide. 
but we're we're in a digital age now. Yeah. So even at that, I don't know if you can see it real well. You know, here like a it's a tides near me website or um uh, app, so I can pull up at any given time and know exactly what the tide's doing, how long ago high tide was, low tide was. This is something that the shift commanders can keep right on their phone or any individual. So knowing knowing your time of day and what's going on is crucial. And just like Dell said, as part of the pre-planning, it's still part of my routine every single shift. When I go in in the morning, um, you know, go in, say hi to the uh, you know the offgoing crew, the oncoming crew, and the first place I go before I make my rounds is up to the beach. And I'm going up to the lifeguard tower. I'm looking to see where the rips are. And my guys, every day, every single day, they go up there. And they're in that habit. They they look at their hazards and go, "Wow, you know, this is this is something that could really jam us up today." Or, "Man, this sea conditions are kind of snotty today." Or, you know, we might have uh, you know extreme uh, issues with marine life. Those are really really important to decide what level of protection they're going to wear. Also, are they going to wear a wetsuit? Are they going to put a dry suit on? Or is it one of those things where you know they're going to find some sort of alternative means? Um, so uh, again, I can't stress enough about the interoperability with some of the other agencies and also just the general pre-planning. And um, Dell, if you don't mind, just real quick, it, it, it popped in my head and I, I know we're- uh, I, I have something too, yeah, go ahead. I, I know it's not off topic, but it just, you know, when, when we talk about, you know, all the things that concern us, uh, you know, back in Ocean City, like a lot of, um, you know, Oceanside communities, fishing is huge and charter fishing and everything else. And a lot of the marinas and, uh, boat slips and everything else, they have big fish cleaning stations. But when you have, when, when the bite's on and you have, you know, 20 tuna carcasses that are all there, they don't dump them in, in where the people put the nice million dollar boats. You know, they give them to the guys in the little skiff and they run them offshore. So Dell, if you don't mind real quick, before we continue on, uh, would you mind regaling us with the story about the, uh, the water rescue you had that night uh, down there near, uh, near the uh, ocean city pier in the inlet? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> and then after that, we, we, we probably should also, like you mentioned, uh, other agencies and watercraft vehicles and a couple incidents that occurred with watercraft vehicles. Um, but yeah, so um, anyway, it was late at night and the police department received a phone call from a young lady's boyfriend that she wanted to commit suicide and she was on the beach and she was going to kill herself. And uh, that's basically all the information they had. And they ingeniously uh, pinged her cell phone and found their cell phone on 3rd Street at the beach. The police went up, found the cell phone. Then they found the clothing from the young lady and all her personal belongings. And they shined a light out to the ocean. And all they could see was something, you know, small out there, but it was out quite a distance. And she wasn't responding to them when... They were yelling to her. They, she wasn't saying anything. So they alerted us. They also alerted other agencies. And uh, I was I was a rescue swimmer that night, arrived on scene. And uh, they said, she's right out there. She's right there. And as he's shining the light, I could look. And it was way out there. And it was a little blip. And it did look like a person. But that was about all I could say. A person's head is really what I would say. And so I began to swim out. And like Trevor mentioned, you know, I, I'm thinking, you know, why have I been put in this situation? Because I know what's out here at night and I know what they put out here. You know, it was all those carcasses, you know, that's where they would dump them out, out off the pier. And, and so anyway, I'm swimming and uh, I finally get to her and I go, fire department rescue swimmer. I'm so excited. I finally got to her, you know, and I pass her my buoy 
And uh, so my fire department rescue swim, I'm here to bring you in. And uh, she says, I don't want to go in. I want to die. And uh, I've never heard anybody tell me that before when I passed them my, uh, my, my rescue can. And uh, I did it again. I established my name. I said, my name's Del. I'm a fire department rescue swimmer. Would you please take the can? I need to bring it ashore. And uh, she refused. She pushed it back away. Um, now, I did notice, and I was being very professional, that she was unclothed because she was floating on her back. But she was refusing the surf rescue can. And so I told her that um, this is where they dump all the carcasses for the tunas. And there's a lot of sharks out here. <laughs> I don't really want to get eaten by a shark. And I don't think you do either. I think we should go to the beach. And with a little bit more encouragement, she finally grabbed a hold of the rescue can. And uh, off we go to the beach. And uh, so that was the end of that story. But I was as happy to be back on the beach as she was that night, I think. <laughs> but, uh. Yeah, that was that was a story um, in itself. But um, but other agencies that you're working with and talking about um, prop driven boats, you know, of course, you know, beach patrol, they're coming to you, you know, on, on something that's non powered most of the time, unless it's surf, surf, ret, uh, surf jet skis that they have. Uh, but I will tell you an incident that happened with a jet ski and. Jet skis are becoming more and more popular now, especially in rescue mode. I know in Bethany they have them. I know, um, I, I know Ocean City has them. But and I just I just found this out by accident when I was on the job, and um, my friend Ward Kovacs said, "Hey, I want to tell you about an incident today that happened to us, and it's never happened before, and uh, we're very fortunate." But what happened, they were doing um, surf rescue drills and the lifeguard was wearing his sling like he's supposed to wear. And anyway, um, he had a rest. He had a victim and the jet ski comes in with a surf rescue board on the back of the jet ski like they use. And the idea is, is to pass the victim off onto the surf rescue board and then they immediately get out of the surf zone in a hurry back over the waves with the victim. And then the lifeguard swims back. Well, as that occurred, the extra line from the sling from the buoy was under the lifeguard when he passed the victim onto the sled and he drilled the jet and he took off in, in, in the jet ski. It sucked up the line. Well, he had the sling. The lifeguard had the sling wrapped around him. Oh. It pinned the Ocean City Beach Patrol re rescue swimmer under the jet ski. Okay. <coughs> the operator immediately knew that he disappeared, right? But he didn't know why. The rest, the, the, the Ocean City Beach Patrol guy could not get the sling off of him. He was literally pinned under the bottom of the ski. Fortunately, the operator had the fortitude to immediately bail off the jet ski, roll it over, and basically had to um, cut it. That's what they had to do. Basically had to cut it. So um, these things can happen, and that was totally unexpected. They had never had anything like it. So from learning from that experience, when operating around even a watercraft, boats especially, Take the sling off 
and bundle it in your hands along with the rope and hold it onto your buoy. So it can become an entanglement problem for you. Um, they ended up writing that into policy, you know, from, from then on. Um, and, you know, again, it's one of those things that, you know, you learn that can happen. And uh, I will tell you, when you're operating with other agencies, you know, they have prop-driven boats, you know, and you may want to consider doing the same thing. If you don't already have a plan or something in place, maybe you should develop one, you know, write a protocol for it, you know, hey, maybe you should take that off, bundle it in your hand so it doesn't become an entanglement hazard for the operator of that vessel. And, and work with your other agencies, work with DENRAC, work with Coast Guard, you know, approaches, you know, they may have a different policy for how they like you to approach their vessel. When you're in the inlet and you have swift currents, you know, they may have a different policy for how they like you to approach the vessel. You know, um, the only way you're going to figure that out is to train with interagency and, 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 and learn the way they like to do it. Um, it's a great experience. It's a great way to learn. Um, even if you have multiple victims, you know, and they've got to get them on board the boat, you know, um, how do they like to bring rescue personnel and victims onto their boat? You know, what's the best way to do it? What's the safest way to do it? They have a way that they prefer to do it. Train with them and learn, you know, they, they may have a specific way they like to do it. Um, Trevor, how do you guys do it down there? Do they have a specific way? They like boarding or making contact. Well, Dale, like, I got to tell you, um, almost everything that has to do with water rescue, whether it's surface or subsurface, uh, I brought with me from what was developed in Ocean City over those years. And yeah. whether and you know, fortunately, you know, between people like yourself and Greggy Temple and you know, so many other people who uh, really had a knack and a background uh, for the water rescue environment and respecting the aquatic environment. But yes, we, uh, same thing. My guys go over and they, they train with the Coast Guard like we did in Ocean City. We'll go and say, okay, how do we how do we transfer a patient from a vessel to the Coast Guard vessel or do we? You know, or how do we transfer a uh, fire EMS provider from a Coast Guard or police uh, marine vessel to a vessel that has someone in distress? So you know, we, we have these conversations well ahead of time. Uh, is it perfect and foolproof? No, absolutely not. Um, but a couple of things that you know, we, we do talk about is how dynamic these incidents are because we might go out and make contact with a, a victim who's out beyond the surf line. And just like you talked about, Dale, you're making that decision. You know, am I out here and provide flotation to this person? Is it worth bringing them back in through the impact zone and potentially losing them if they don't have the the strength or the uh, ability to hold on, or should I just sit here and float until a boat gets to me, but then I have to worry about the the risk and reward of you know, working around a, a vessel. And like we talked about, uh, just like any basic water rescue, everyone talks about reach, throw, row, and go. Well, we have the fifth element in there, which is helo. Talking about the helicopter, even if we don't do a hoist operation, they have an elevated vantage point. They can usually see people subsurface. They can use their uh, night vision. They can use their night sun. They can use their spotlights uh, you know, in diminishing light. So with that, we also have to look and say, okay, you know, let's play the what-if game. Very rarely do we go and make a contact rescue where the person stays in the exact same spot. And we're always thinking, okay, if they, if they were to go from surface to subsurface, Where's, now, we, we're responsible for establishing that last scene point, but 
uh, just like we've trained, like we did in the Carolinas, uh, Dell, when we went down to teach some of those departments um, down near Myrtle Beach. What happens if you start your rescue 100 yards up the beach here, and then the next thing you know, you're coming up on a pier or a rock jetty or, you know, Boy. some, a, a, they call them groins. Yep, you're right. So, um, so those are some things to really think about is, you know, a lot of these rescues are very, very dynamic. So it can go from something relatively simple. But again, just like you talked about, Dell, do we have a longshore current that day? Do we have something that's going to take us from north to south? And even intercepting somebody, um, you know, teaching our folks to not go like moth to the flame directly out to the victim. If there's a longshore current, they might actually have to go way down the beach and then be able to intercept way, you know, 100 yards offshore versus swimming out. And by that time, the patient or the victims bypassed them. So uh, you know, the short answer to your question is, yes, uh, we, we do speak to all the different uh, wonderful jobs, but each one has their own policies and protocols. And we're people divided by a common language. Uh, I know from you know, being a swimmer for a long time and also being an instant commander on you know, a few times where I thought I actually lost a swimmer, um, you know, the Coast Guard speaks a little bit differently than we do. Uh, you know, you're used to it. I'm used to it because we do the marine operations. But, you know, in Ocean City, for example, we speak completely backwards of, of how the Coast Guard does. They, you know, they do from me to you. So uh, you know, they'll say you know, Coast Guard Station, Ocean City, Maryland, Coast Guard Station, Ocean City, Maryland to whomever. You know, we, we call whoever it is we're talking to, then identify ourselves. So we have to get on the same page. And uh, just as a, a brief thing, it almost goes back to like the old airplane movie. Um, had a boat fire some years ago. And uh, one of our one of our former chiefs, phenomenal guy uh, for his first name's Roger. Well, you know, we, we say, OK, on the radio, we just acknowledge or back in the day, 10-4. But every time the Coast Guard, you know, would acknowledge something and say Roger, he'd get on the radio and go, go ahead. So it just it, it became comical and frustrating all at the same time. Um, but, but, you know, it's, it's just but you're right, Dale, you, you do have to make sure that um, you, you actually you know, have the face time with all the individuals in the different entities that you might be using. And um, you know, same thing. There's if, if you're on a VHF radio and, and they put out the security or the pompon or anything else over that channel 16 on the hailing and distress. Sometimes you have some very well-meaning boaters that might come to assist you. They're not used to working with people in the water. And I guarantee, you know, uh, Dale, I can picture it right now. When you go up to do a tow, you know, you're, you, if you can, you're going a 360 around that boat. You're, you're looking for objects in the water, anything, and, you know, you're, you're taking your time. You know, and, but how many times have we been in the water? And, you know, here comes you know, Johnny Weekender in his, in his bass boat. And he's flying up to the scene, and you know, at the very last minute, he drops off the throttle, not realizing that it's going to take him another hundred feet for that boat to come to rest. So, um, you know, you do you do have to make sure that you, know, you you operate like you train, you train like you operate, go out in the conditions, um, keep people safe. But as a side note to that, when you do have a rescue, keep in mind that you do have the ability to not only use those resources as an adjunct to your rescue but also to establish a perimeter for you. They can keep people out of your rescue zone. So if that's an important thing too, is to say, you know, they'll keep everybody out from rushing in or just haphazardly transiting across, not realizing what's going on, because you've got to keep your people in the water safe. Um, even when we tether people, uh, when we do landline rescues, and I had it the one night, um, actually, I think Dell, you were on that call as well. 
where we had a bunch of people. I was the IC. Guys went out. Um, some were tethered. Some weren't. And the next thing I look, diminishing light. And you know, here's about 200 feet of land or 200 yards of landline out and a floating buoy offshore, offshore and no rescue buoy. Yep. And so you know, the providers, because the people have gone from surface to subsurface and a couple of them were in cardiac arrest, they had been pulled on on board the Coast Guard boat. We couldn't really see what was going on, even with binoculars. And you know, they were busy. They were doing <clears throat> CPR and taking the people to uh, the Coast Guard station. But. I like Dell said, there's there's no radio, there's no communication where I can do a par check. So I'm I'm calling through our patch, and we had a great radio system in Ocean City. And you know, of course, the Coast Guard boats underway. They got wind, they got elements. They're busy on board. And you know, am I going to am I going to commit additional rescuers to search for my missing rescuer that may or may not be in the water? Fortunately, it turned out that the rescuer got pulled on board and went to the Coast Guard station. But um, you know. I, my hairline used to be probably down to here before that, but, you know, <laughs> scooch back a little bit. But, um, yeah, Dale, you're absolutely right. Is uh, There's so many different elements, and the best time to address some of these elements is going out in each and every shift playing the what-if game. And right. you know, go out there and pre-plan. It's, it's not a bad thing. Pre-plan, you know, train in it, tra- train in those conditions, you know. Team up as, a, you know, t- together in twos. And uh, you can always have two people on the beach, you know, to do visuals um, and, and and try to bring somebody in. Try to bring somebody in who is resisting, you know, uh, or combative. Try to bring them back through an impact zone, you know. Um, ask them to be, you know, resistant. Ask them to be, you know, um, you know, non-compatible. I mean, basically, you know, you will learn real quickly, you know, whether or not you can hold on to them or not. And the impact zone is a is a difficult place to lose somebody because you don't know where they're going to end up. They could end up on the surf or they could end up a long ways down the beach also. Um, so, I again, uh, train in it. Train with multiple agencies. Um, know what your plans are. Know your personnel. Um, don't be afraid to say, you know, if you're uncomfortable with going out there, don't be afraid to say it, you know. Um if it's too big or if it's too difficult or it's dark at night and there's things that make you feel uncomfortable, you do not have to go do that. Um, there, there's no reward there, believe me. Yeah, and, Dale, you, you've said it before, and I know it's a phrase that we use uh, very commonly in the industry. We talk about go and no-go situations. Yep. Just because someone says, hey, I think my boyfriend, girlfriend, ex-wife, whatever, is in the water, um, you know, we're looking for different signs. Is there a pile of clothes on the beach? Is there something that's indicating to us that there's a probability? Because once we commit our rescuers to the water, they're in extreme danger. And it's, it, even if they do make a contact, people in general, they go into survival mode. They want to grab a hold of the largest floating object in the water. And that largest floating object is you, the rescuer, each and every time. And there's been some really good swimmers, um, some lifeguards on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. And those, those folks are no joke whatsoever. Um, they, they had, uh, I think one killed, one injured a few years back from an eight year old girl and yeah. same thing. And these, you know, those folks, they do that in their sleep. I mean, they call surf rescue Tuesday. That's not a big deal for them, but you know, it, it can and will happen, but we just do not have the resources to come and, and get our rescuers when something goes basically from sugar to shit. And, you know, we don't have that option. So that's why we really have to be on that a game. So, um, you know, with, with that, um, the only last thing I'll say to that end, 
is uh, I don't know if he's listening tonight or not, but uh, one of our you know dear brothers and friends, uh, Michael Hickman. He was uh, yeah he he hold his own on a lot of stuff. He's the guy who'd go interior on a car fire. That's another story for another night. But um, yeah, I, yes he did. But um, more than once. But either way, if, if you're going to be tethered, you know, make, make sure that we cross train with the entry and non-entry personnel a little more regularly. Um, it's I'll just say it's kind of a bummer when you're when you're swimming a couple hundred yards offshore in March in in the Mid Atlantic region and uh, your your tether kind of breaks off of your your uh, suit and you you're kind of stranded out there. So if, I'll just say to my brother Mike, if you can't tie a knot, tie a lot or take a rescue class. But other than that, that's that's all I'm going to say about that. Oh, that's great. All right, so <clears throat> we're going to use that as Trevor's wrap-up. Uh, let's kick it down to Bobby for his final thoughts as we wrap up this week's show. Thanks a lot for coming on, Dell. I appreciate it. Uh, from the, uh, the, the lowly non-swimmer guy here, all these other guys are swim rescue guys. Um, it's been interesting to me. Uh, I think, you know, I, I got the idea, keep track of where they first were, let you guys know where they are. Um, but, I, you know, Dell's, um, I have a lot of respect for Dell. He's been a great guy to me for my whole career. And, um, you know, he's uh, still in the water. He's always on the water. And uh, I'd, I'd love to have him back again and probably talk about more about uh, more of the boating stuff you're doing now, too. You know, how to keep the swimmer safe and stuff. We just kind of ran out of time. So right. um, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And thanks a bunch for Dell for, for coming in. And, uh, listen, I, I got to tell you, <clears throat> about a, 10 minutes, 15 minutes ago, you're – your dog was around behind you. I think it died from starvation. So, <laughs> or wanting to go outside one of the other. <laughs> oh, gosh. Hey, well, listen. Hey, th- thank you guys for including me. I, I-, I very much appreciate it. Um, you guys know what's near and dear to me, and that's the water. And always has been, always will be. And anything that I can share, you know, uh, it- it's an honor to do it. And it's a pleasure to work with you guys. Thank you. Um, I would like to do it again. I think there's some other things that we could probably talk about. And uh, Ben, thanks for hosting it. And uh, and remember, you can't you can't rescue them all, but honor the ones that you can always. Okay. Absolutely. And thanks. Um, hang on a second. We're gonna get that out of there for a second. Um, so before we go to that, uh, thanks again, guys, for joining us, Dell. It's always a pleasure. Um, I remember coming up through, uh, you know, starting as a new part timer getting cleared as a, as an ALS provider and becoming a rescue swimmer, driver, all that kind of stuff with the department and, and really being mentored by really all three of you guys. And it, it was an awesome time and it was a, a fantastic place to work. Um, and, and so great to, to be able to work with you guys now and, and do this kind of stuff. So thank you guys for joining us. Um, as a fi- as some final thoughts, just, you know, um, things that, that popped through my head when, when, uh, we were talking through all this is, the interoperability, working with the other organizations, uh, find out who's in your area, who's in your first two that can help you, um, you know, get your, if, if you don't have a program, who can help you get, get one started? Um, you know, again, Ocean City, we were fortunate to work with a phenomenal beach patrol um, as far as their training. You know, one of my favorite days to work every year um, was always the day that we did our training and our recertification on the beach with them. Uh, just, it, it was great to see, um, you know, just how efficient they are at making entries and, and pulling people out and doing the searches and all that kind of stuff. It's it's truly impressive to see that and, and to get to work with those folks. Uh, so thank you to the Ocean City Beach Patrol um, for all of that. Using using your Coast Guard, and I think uh, towards the end of my time in Ocean City, 
Uh, when we would be dispatched for a water rescue, we would automatically get Coast Guard was 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 spun up. Um, you know, if it was at night, we were automatically getting Trooper Four from Maryland State Police. Um, NRP was coming. Like we got all kinds of resources. Uh, one one response that I remember in particular, uh, night rescue. We were at Station Two uh, for a swimmer in the water, and and the the tractors that were on the beach. Um, you know, we we come up over the beach. And I'll never forget, I thought the tractor was almost completely all the way in the water, um, but they have the big lights that go across the top of their tractors and, um, you know, just lighting up all of the ocean or as much as it could. And, um, it was it was comforting to see that. Thankfully, the, the victim had made their way out of the water. But, um, you know, the other rescue swimmer and I, as we're making our way across the beach, uh, seeing that it was it was a comforting sight to see that. So, um you know, and then the the final thing, and and everybody has test, touched on it tonight, is you have to have respect for the environment that you're going to be entering. Um, if you if it's one of those situations, you know, it's the end of September, October, big surf, big storm coming through, um, and and you go out and you look, you're doing your checks, and you look and you it's it's victory at sea. Uh, it looks like a washing machine. You know, maybe that's the day that you know it's not. It's not the day that we make entries, um, and that's okay. Um, you know, you you have to have a point where you make that decision, and and it's you have to worry about yourself, uh, and you know, are you going to be able to go out and make a rescue, and then if somebody else is, are you going to be able to make it back in? So, you know, if if you have to make that decision, uh, it sucks, um, but unfortunately, like that, those are decisions that we have to make sometimes. So. Um, so again, thank you guys. It's always a pleasure to sit here and and have a drink and, and chat, uh, sit around the I'd say the the virtual kitchen table. Um, so we're going to kick it off to these slides. So again, huge thanks to Captain Del Baker, uh, retired Ocean City Fire Department Lieutenant. Uh, so for our social media stuff, uh, again as always, strike the box on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. There's our website, which we try to update as frequently as we can. Uh, so check that out. Um, all of our previous webcasts and Thirsty Thursday events are on there. Uh, and then our email. So if you have any questions, you want to get up with us, um, you know, something that we said, or you want some more information about whatever it is that we've talked about, definitely. And uh, please reach out to us and uh, we'd be more than happy to help. Coming in two weeks. So August 6th is our next event. Um, Thirsty Thursday, number 11, uh, doing more with less. Uh, and, which is the like the heart of the fire service uh, from the time that I've joined to through now, it's always been well. That's great that we got this, but uh, we need you to we need you to do a little bit more, or we're going to cut this, and we still need you to maintain everything that you're doing. So, um, talking about doing more with less, uh, August sixth to seven p.m. As always, Facebook and YouTube, uh, and our special guest next week uh, is Captain Lisa Shield. Uh, she works for the state of Alaska, the Rural Fire Training Specialist. So. Who else better to talk about doing more with less uh, than someone that's working in rural Alaska, doing some fire training, um, helping out in the villages and, and providing that protection out there. So we are super excited to, to be talking with her and to see what she has for us uh, next week. So until then, stay safe, take care of each other, enjoy the summer, stay safe in the water, and we'll see you soon. Launcher.